I've always found the book of Luke, especially that second chapter, to be one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible. It's the chapter that we go to every Christmas season. It's the story of Jesus' birth. And I think actually, again, as we sort of did last week, I think we have to go to Luke 2 to understand this Old Testament scripture. So if you keep your place in Isaiah chapter 11, but go to Luke 2 for a minute. As you remember that great scene of the angels greeting the shepherds with this amazing news that Jesus the Savior is born in a manger just down the way. And they tell them something specific They tell them something about this Christ child, that they would find him lying in a manger. And what I love about this scene is that the shepherds leave this manger scene. I imagine them leaving and skipping and singing as they go, rejoicing over what they have found. Notice verse number 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. As it had been told them. They find everything exactly as the angel had prophesied. As the angel had told them. They found everything exactly as he said. A baby in the manger. Which likewise meant peace on the earth. That's what they were told after all. Look at verse 14. As the angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Among those with whom he is pleased. That's what's inaugurated at this coming of the Messiah. The coming of Jesus, the Savior, meant the coming of peace in the world. A word which means harmony. Lack of strife. I think it's a testament to who this baby truly is. Not just a baby boy. It is God come in the flesh. God come as an infant. But I think it's also an indication. This announcement of peace on the earth. And goodwill toward men. As the verse is often translated. I think is also an indication. Of one of the deepest needs of mankind. It should come as no surprise. That nearly every song that we sing at Christmas time. Has in it a sort of longing for peace. And in fact I counted. Out of the Christmas hymns that make up your hymnal in front of you, there's roughly 13 that explicitly mention this longing, this desire that peace would come and fill the earth. That hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has the words, Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. The other carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, I think sums up this longing quite well. Where the chorus says, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, good will to men. We sing those words, or similar words, and we're singing at the same time, not just things that come from scripture. We're singing what is, we could say, the universal human need of true and lasting Peace, lack of conflict, lack of strife, lack of hatred. And it's not just Christmas carols. It's not just church hymns that have this longing for peace filling their words. Even the secular songs that are sung at Christmas times are likewise filled with this theme. Maybe I haven't stopped to think about it, but I recently tried to. There's a lot of songs that deal with this theme that are sung by not Christians, but just regular pop artists. If you remember the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, what does Frank Sinatra sing? He says, 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. That I find to be sort of a similar longing for peace, just sung in a different way. No more trouble. No more turmoil. As the second stanza says, all our troubles will be out of sight, miles away. And that lack of trouble comes how? How does Frank Sinatra sing about this lack of trouble? If the fates allow, he says. A similar sentiment is heard in the 1992 song. Made famous by Amy Grant. Which has the words or is, is entitled Grown Up Christmas List. I'm sure you're familiar. The chorus goes like this. No more lives torn apart. That wars would never start. And time would heal our hearts. And everyone would have a friend. And right would always win. And love would never end. No, this is my grown up Christmas list. If you're not familiar, the premise of that song is of an adult sort of reflecting on all the things that he used to wish for at Christmas time. And now as an older sort of adult, a a person who's been through some stuff perhaps, it's brought with it this realization that there's something bigger to wish for. There's something bigger that they need, but also they can see that other people need. We could summarize it by just saying what they need, what the singer realizes they need is peace. World peace, peace that that seeps into the hearts and lives of every single man and brother. No more lives torn apart, as the song says. No more war, no more hunger, no more loneliness. No more brokenness, no more injustice. That's what the singer is praying for, essentially, by praying this song. Sounds very much like the 1971 song by John Lennon. Happy Christmas, war is over. Which was really nothing but an anti-war protest song that was sort of made to sound like a Christmas song. If you're familiar with that song, what are the words? Let's stop all the fight. War is over if you want it. Now to be clear, I'm not trying to poke fun or mock at the sentiment of some of your favorite Christmas songs. I'm not trying to be Scrooge or anything. Feel free to crank these songs if these are your favorite ones come Christmas time. What I want you to see is that this longing for peace is something that everyone feels. Not just we who sit in church pews. Everyone in the world has this this innate feeling that something is off. That our world is desperate for peace. Everyone feels that I think within their bones. We all feel it. And I think we all feel it precisely because we can see. We can see all the the evidences of the fact that our world doesn't have it. We can look at all kinds of news headlines and see. That our world is bereft of peace. Ours is an agitated world. A conflicted world. A world that is divided. A world that is filled with dissension and discord. And hostility. And hunger. And we sing about peace I think. And we pray about peace. Because we know we don't have it. Nothing that truly lasts. Nothing that truly withstands the test of time. And the point I'm trying to make is this, that any longing, any aspiration for peace that doesn't have, that leaves out the prince of peace is actually pointless. It's nothing more than just a well-meaning sentiment that is ultimately powerless. 
Case in point, try, if you want to, googling the list of world peace committees that are funded by government funds. There's a lot of them, actually. It's quite a long list. You have such organizations as the Peace Corps and the Peace Alliance and the Peace Development Fund. And then there's the World Peace Council established in 1949 and the International Peace Institute established in 1970. And many more that I don't have time to list. But I think it's interesting that the fact that all these programs exist... I think suggests that none of them have succeeded in their mission to bring about peace to the world. All of them are functioning. All of them are doing what they can do to do uh, to bring peace into this land. And none of them are actually succeeding. Because they're all existing at the same time. <laughs> Perhaps the closest we ever got to world peace was actually during the age known as the Pax Romana. Which literally is Latin for Roman peace. This was a 200 roughly year long uh, period of general peace. Relative peace and prosperity within the Roman kingdom. The Roman empire. It stretched from roughly the year 27 to about the year 180. 27 BC to 180 AD. And during that time. Rome's might just increased exponentially. Their empire became very strong and very stable. The economy increased. Civil wars decreased. And it led to somewhat we could say of a a golden age of Roman imperialism. But even the Pax Romana is I think a little bit of a lie. It doesn't tell the full story. Because what's going on during the same period as this we could call it Roman peace. Christians are being eaten alive inside Roman arenas. Peaceful persecution? That doesn't make much sense. That's all of that is to say this. That while the Pax Romana was relatively peaceful. Even that. That almost seeming heights of human and world peace throughout the Roman Empire. Was not the utopia that mankind so desperately needs and craves and desires. Even that was filled with heartache and bloodshed and travesty. Just ask the church. Interestingly, I think the perfect example and description of what world peace is comes from our text, Isaiah chapter 11. Those verses, verses 6 through 9, let me read them to you again. Notice what the prophet says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow, and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's peace. Leopards and lambs and little lads all playing together in fields and enjoying each other's company without any fear. That's We could say essentially what all those world peace task forces are striving for. Although they wouldn't dare use this type of language because this comes from the Judeo-Christian Bible. (laughs) But that's what they're striving for. That's what they're looking for. This is what they're hoping to bring about. Case in point. So you had 
The World Peace Council in 1949. You had the International Institute of Peace in 1970. But in 1984, America decided that those two organizations, they weren't enough. They weren't actually doing enough to bring about world peace. So in 1984, they established the world, excuse me, the United States Institute for Peace, whose tagline is, reads, quote, making peace possible. And this organization envisions a world without any violent conflict at all. And you might ask, how do they do this? How do they propose, the United States Institute for Peace, how do they propose to bring about a world without conflict, without violence, through the very exciting and invigorating errand of policymaking? Mm, sounds exciting. This comes straight from their website where they say they seek to, quote, this, if this doesn't make you want to be peaceful, I don't know what will. They say, quote, research and analysis and field experience to strengthen the capacity of policymakers and other professionals to respond on some of the most critical global challenges of the 21st century. Which sounds really nice, I suppose. But do you see what is actually happening? They're saying this organization, this man-made organization, is actually positing that peace is achievable through policy. So they claim, if only we knew that when the Second World War was going on, maybe we could have prevented it. I don't know. You see, though, what is cutting through all of these visions that man has for world peace, they are actually powerless. All we have to do is sing the war is over. All we have to do is find the right amount of policy to implement. And that will change people's behaviors. That will change people's attitudes. That will bring about this great and grand vision of a world without conflict. While I regret to reform all of those who are in Washington. That for however well written and how accurate their new policies are. All the feuds and the foibles that have plagued this world will continue well into the future. Because humanity has a problem that policy can't solve. Humanity has a need that can't be solved by man-made compulsion. Humanity has thousands of years of data that proves that Peace can never be a change through philanthropy or policy or politics. It won't work. It's never worked. It's never lasted. And I don't think this means that we need to be negligent in our efforts to be kind to one another or anything like that. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean that we should take for granted these organizations or get involved where we can, perhaps, if the Lord so leads. It does mean that all of our efforts... To bring in a more peaceful or a more inclusive society, if you will. They have to come with the understanding that we ultimately cannot make that happen. We aren't the ones that bring in world peace. Peace, again, without the prince of peace is nothing but a well-meaning but all meet, but albeit powerless sentiment. It's something that mankind can never bring about themselves. It's something that will always exist just beyond their grasp. And I think this brings us back to our text in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Because his description, his declaration of peace is different. This 
image that he has in mind of, of bears and cows and toddlers all laying on the field together is not some sort of fanciful vision of a utopia that's achieved through politics or through better choices or through policies. It's not allegorical. It's not a metaphor. It's not some whimsical dream. This text that is in front of you is a word from Yahweh. It's a certain word, a sure word, a solid word that comes from God himself. And it's tethered, it's tied, it's connected to this one whom Yahweh himself will send to bring about all that he has promised. Notice verse number 10. Because this grand vision of peace... Of righteousness filling the earth like a flood. Notice who it is who brings this vision into reality. Notice verse number 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse, he calls him. As a callback to verse number 1. Which itself is a callback to chapter 10. So go with me to chapter 10 just for a minute. As Isaiah has been prophesying, he is here prophesying to the people of God about the day of judgment that's coming for the nation of Assyria. At this time, you might know, the people of Judah have been ransacked with horrible desolations that have come at the hand of the nation of Assyria. This is part of God's judgments on the people of God. And Isaiah is speaking to them. Telling them that while they have enjoyed perhaps, while Assyria has enjoyed the the loftiness of their conquest, soon they are about to be cut down to size. Quite literally, the Assyrian days are numbered. Soon as Isaiah prophesies, God would send his majestic one. To act as somewhat of a divine lumberjack to cut down the enemies of all the people of God. Notice verse 33 of chapter 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The greats and heights will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. What's happening? Israel's enemies are being chopped down by this one who comes with an axe. This one who comes from heaven. And what is he leaving? He's leaving what used to be a a majestic kingdom. The kingdom of Assyria into nothing but stumps. Because this one is coming down and cutting them down to size. And it's a hopeful message for the people of Judah. For the people of Israel. God's chosen people. As here they're hearing the message about how they will be delivered. How they will be liberated. Their overlords are going to be no more. But even still that didn't quite address Judah's predicament. Their problem. Because Judah at this time in history was a shell of its former self. All of the the blessing and the honor and the glory of God's chosen kingdom was all but gone. It had been ground to the dust by decades of exile and fear and becoming disillusioned with the words of God. And you might say that the kingdom was nothing but a stump at this point. And that's exactly what the prophet says. As he says in verse 1 of our text, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
The stump of Jesse is literally just, we could say, a euphemism or a nickname that the prophet is here employed to allude to that promised and illustrious kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, that united kingdom of the son of Jesse that experiences all the glory and the might and the splendor and the blessing and the favor of God. And as he says here, as he alludes, as he gets in the mind's eye of these who are reading this, reading this text, that was nothing but a stump. It was all but gone. And stumps don't look very promising, do they? A tree stump is, is what? It's a reminder of a tree that used to be there. It's a reminder of something that used to be strong and towering and exalting. And yet it's no longer there anymore. All that remains is a stump. A dead tree trunk from a defunct tree. And you can see Isaiah's words to this people. This is what you've become. And it's precisely though in that state of disconsolation. That state of seeming no hope. We are nothing but a kingdom that has been reduced to a stump. This is where this hopeful message that Isaiah has springs out of. Because notice again verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. From a stump. From that stump of Jesse as he calls this kingdom. Will come a new shoot. A new branch we will say that springs out of that dead tree trunk. It'll sprout and it'll grow. It'll grow and reach towards the heavens again. And it'll bring the whole root system back to life. As it says, bringing forth fruit. Of course, this, this root this root of Jesse, that, this branch that comes forth out of the stump of Jesse is an allusion to the Messiah. That fills the people of Israel with hope. We could call him a new David. As he would be the son of David and the son of Jesse, perhaps even say. And he would come and he would, perf- he would perfect and complete and actually bring into reality all those promises made so long ago to King David in 2 Samuel 7. All those covenantal promises about a kingdom that has no end and a throne that would never be unoccupied. This is going to come about through this one that Isaiah is talking about. He would be a king of truth and justice and righteousness and faithfulness as he talks about in verses 3 through 5. Notice, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will be even wiser than Solomon, even wiser than all the wisest of the kings of Israel. But with righteousness, absolute righteousness, what? He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. His concern will be for the lowly. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He will be a God of justice and a God of truth and a God of vindication. Why? Because righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is describing the king who will come. The new David who would come and raise up that stump of Jesse back to its glory. Back to its heights of prominence. And this kingdom will be a kingdom of unending and universal peace. 
And this comes exactly from those verses, the verses that we read a moment ago in verses 6 through 9. That describe this kingdom of a lion and a lamb laying together. But actually it's even more explained in the verses that follow. Verses 11 down through the end. Notice those verses again. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. And he will recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros and from Cush. From Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath. And from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of the earth. Or excuse me, assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And what is he saying? It's not just, as he has just alluded to in the previous verses, that predator and prey will all get together and play in fields and meadows. What is he saying? This whole world is going to be blanketed in the peace of this heaven-sent king. This peace will be truly world peace, world peace without end. As he says, from the coastlands of the sea to the four corners of the earth, they will all be united together. As he alludes, he, this king, this heaven-sent king, this root of Jesse, he will gather all people to himself, all of his people, and he will put an end to all their strivings and all their squabblings. As he says in verse 13, notice, The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. All those old tribal uh, sort of quarrels, those tribal conflicts that got the people of Judah into a horrible mess at the very beginning of it all anyways, all of those will be put to rest. No longer will internal conflict bring down this kingdom of Yahweh. It will be bastioned by peace because the prince of peace will be here. And yes, even further, as he says in verses 14 through 16, all the enemies that Israel might face, they will all be made to be thwarted. They're going to enjoy the bounty of the peace that comes when this new David arrives. All of that. All of that message. Of peace and harmony and lack of strife and no more war. And this peace and and fellowship between divided brothers and nations. All of that is bound up together. And that announcement of peace that is coming with the baby in the manger. When the angels sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is what they're talking about. This is what they are announcing. This is what's coming, they are saying. Peace on earth. Because heaven's prince of peace has come. You see, Jesus is that prince of peace. Sent by God in the spirit of the Lord to establish peace on this earth. And that's exactly how he comes. Like a very unsuspecting and surprising little twig that starts to shoot out of a trunk, out of a trunk that many thought to be dead. The Lord arrives how? In a lowly little cattle stall. He comes as an infant to sprout, if you will. But he comes endowed, as verse number 2 says, with all of the spirit and the wisdom and the might and understanding of God, precisely because he is God. He is the branch which springs from the stump, the one who brings about God's kingdoms of peace. As Jesus himself says in Revelation 22, he is the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
And how does he bring about peace? How does he make it so? How does he accomplish this mission of bringing peace to the world and goodwill towards men? Verse number 12 is our clue. Notice, I'll be done in just a moment. Notice what he says. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of, the, of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. He will raise a signal. The signal will beckon all these who have been scattered and lost, all of these to come together again, as he says, in one great, glorious, unified assembly. This signal, though, is a word which means standard or, or banner or something that's lifted up. You might imagine a flag on a battlefield. Because essentially that's what he's saying. That this heaven sent king, the new David, will come and raise a banner which all of those who are God's people will flock to. And what is this banner? What is this signal for the nations? Well, the better question is who is this signal? Because as he says in verse number 10, notice in that day, the root of Jesse... Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. The banner, the signal that's raised up, that's lifted up for all of the nations. Is none other than the root of Jesse himself. It's Jesus himself. The new David, the Messiah. He is coming. And yes, as the angel announces, he has come. To be his people's, the church's rallying point, the flag under which they stand, the banner, the signal which draws all men to itself. And this is a great, great point to meditate on. Because this, you see, is a prophecy of the cross. A signal that is raised is the exact same language that is used in Numbers chapter 21. Where Moses raises, lifts a bronze serpent that stands as the emblem of salvation for God's people. If you remember Numbers 21, the people of God have been plagued by a mass of venomous serpents that are biting and killing them. And this comes as... The end is sort of a culminating moment in which God's people have become so disgruntled once again. By God leading them into the wilderness. And what happens? Moses raises a serpent on a staff. A serpent made of bronze. This emblem of death is raised so the people might look at it and have life. And they are freed from whatever venom is coursing through them. It's the same language as is here in Isaiah 11. As a signal that is raised for the nations. Which of course is the same language that Jesus himself applies to himself. In John chapter 3. As he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He is the signal. He is the banner. He is the one that all the nations flock to and rejoice in. The banner of peace over the earth is the banner of Christ crucified. The cross is that banner which beckons the poor and the meek and the lost and the outcast to come close and to come home. As Jesus himself says in John 12, 32. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, this is 
how we get the fullest picture of how God establishes peace on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. He makes the kingdom of peace through his son's death. The son of God, this one who is called the root of Jesse, the Messiah, the Savior. He comes as the prince of peace, making peace for sinners by he himself being the offering of peace for all people. And that's what we revel in each and every Christmas. That God sends one who makes peace. See, this is what Jesus is, as the angels say. He is the Savior. The one who would save his people from their sins. Jesus is not a divine author. Send from heaven in order to deliver us a divine instruction manual on how to live better. Jesus is not a mystic who has come to sort of guide us into some sort of transcendent experience of Zen or heavenly nirvana and say, there, you have peace now. Jesus is not a moralist. Come to merely give us an example of the way to live more peacefully with our brothers and sisters. Jesus, of course, is not a politician. Come to legislate a reign of peace through policy and compulsion. He is none of those things. He is the Savior. The Prince of Peace who dies to make peace possible. What does he say? All of the Gospels. That he has come to give us his peace. And the peace that he gives us. This lack of strife. This harmony is not the peace of tracts and and pacts and policies. It's not an illusion. It's the peace and harmony that Jesus gives us that comes from the top down. That is, we could say, it is peace, the deep peace, the true peace that we can have from knowing that our debt is settled forever. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that he comes to give us. The peace that he offers with an extended, bloodied hand. He comes to be our peace himself. Go with me really quick. I want to read this before we close. Ephesians chapter 2. Because you have to see this connection point. This signal that's raised for the nations. That will bring all of the sinners who come and repent and believe in this one who is the Savior. He is our peace. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice this grand declaration that I think is exactly connected to this time of peace that comes through the gospel of Christ crucified. Notice what he says, Paul does in Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. A devastating, truly devastating reality that describes every sinner, that describes the world even now. But as it says, but now, the good news is what? In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For what? For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. 
And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by what? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The signal for the nations, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God builds on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Grows like a sprout out of a dead tree trunk. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is what Jesus has come to establish. This is what Jesus has come to give us. Just like the Assyrians and the Egyptians and all the conflict that exists between them and the people of God. It will all be laid down by what? The blood of Christ who brings those who are divided, who brings those who are far off together again. You know, every time we come and worship as a church, this is what we are magnifying. The Prince of Peace. Who brings we who are divided from one another into harmony. By the blood of his son. Think for a moment perhaps. Of strifes that you've endured. Conflicts that you have gone through. Perhaps even in this past year. Whether it be with family, extended family, friends, loved ones. Ones who you thought would never betray you. Who now you stand distant from. There is a prince of peace who comes to bring those who are divided into unity once more. There's one who has come that we might lay down all of our arms of hostility. The things that we would rather raise up and defend ourselves with. What does Jesus come and do? He comes and gives us himself. And he is the prince of peace for us. He has come, my friends. The Prince of Peace has come for you. If you are feeling still at conflict, still at war, perhaps at war with yourself, at war with a friend, a loved one, a family member, there is a Prince who has come to eradicate all that hostility, to make it go away and to make it go away in something that is true and lasting in the blood that he has shed for you. My friends, if you are seeking peace this morning, don't seek it in some sort of program, some sort of policy. Seek it in the person of it. Seek it in the only person who can give it to you. The Prince of Peace who has come for you. Let us pray.